So, as I said, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19, starting at verse 1. So, I'm going to read, actually, the entire chapter. Uh, that's what we're going through. I'm going to read the entire chapter so we can get a, a mindset of what, what all is in it. And then, <coughs> excuse me, we'll pray and jump in. So, if you're able to stand, I'd love for you to stand with me, starting in 1 Kings 19, verse 1. <coughs> excuse me. Um, after I read, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you'll respond by saying, thanks be to God. And of course, you're thanking the Lord that he'll give us his word. But also let that be for you a place where you are saying yes to the Lord uh, and the things that he teaches you and that you want to be obedient to him. So starting in verse one, Ahab told Jezreel that all Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servants there. But he himself went a day's journey further into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away from me my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was uh, at his head a cake baked on a hot stone and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and he ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Then he came to a cage, cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek to save my life, they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke it into pieces uh, before. In pieces the rocks before the Lord, and the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, and the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire a sound of a low whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave, and behold, there came a voice and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord. The God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel Moholoah, <laughs> shall appoint the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of the oxen and sacrificed them, boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. And he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we ask for your help this morning. As we look at um, 
more narrative from First Kings that, as we read, can certainly be daunting to understand how it applies to us in 21st century um, and, and what it means. And so, Lord, would you send your Holy Spirit and be so kind to us now to help us see and understand um, not only what it means, but how can we apply it in our life this morning. And I pray that more than anything, uh, that we would see and understand the good news of Jesus and that um, Christ would shine through the text and that we would be thankful for what you've done for us by giving your life for us on the cross. Help me, Lord, uh, speak through me. I'm, in, as always, in desperate need for you to come and, and speak through me. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, one of my commentators actually said this. 1 Corinthians 19 is maybe one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. So you read that and you're like, wow, how's that? Because I could think of a lot of other things that could be maybe classified as one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. Because I just read it and maybe you're thinking, I've read it once or twice in my life. And I don't remember anything besides he ran and hid in a cave because he was afraid of Jezebel. How's that one of the most important things? Um, well, let me, let, me, uh, let, me, let me maybe show you. So everyone, as we should know, is a missionary in life. And uh, what, what I mean by that, of course, it depends on what you mean by your term missionary. So uh, I don't think that everyone is a missionary if we think that using this term in this kind of a technical sense that uh, where someone leaves their homeland and goes to another place, a different culture, a different language to live among them and, and proclaim the gospel. Not everyone is a missionary in that kind of technical sense of the word, nor will everybody be. Because everybody isn't called to leave the culture you're lived in. God calls most of us to stay in the culture we're in, which is fine. That's what he calls us to. But everyone is a missionary in that, uh, if we use the term in a broad sense, in that everyone is responsible to carry out the call of the Great Commission as given to us in Matthew 18. Or, I'm sorry, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which we read together at the end of every service. Everyone is called to that. As Jesus says to all of us in John 20, 21, he says this. Um, Jesus said to them, peace be with you as the father has sent me. So like let the weight of all that and the truth of all that land on your shoulders uh, and your mind and your heart and your soul as the father has sent me. And just think, ponder, how has God the father sent Jesus and what all has God the Father sent His Son Jesus to do? And what, what all does that entail? What all does that encompass? Um, I mean, it's, it's amazing to think the, the sending nature of God the Father to the Son. And so He says, as the Father has sent me, and then He looks at His disciples, which means all of us, even so, I am sending you. So, in much the same way that God the Father has sent Jesus to leave heaven to come to earth, to live among people uh, that were not like him, to go to the cross and die for them and then proclaim to them the gospel of the kingdom. He's sending us. The only piece that's not us, right, that we don't do is we don't go to the cross, right? We're not perfect sacrifices. But other than that, there's a lot of, lot of similarities in the way that the Father has sent Jesus. Jesus is sending us to go to a people that aren't like us, to proclaim the gospel, etc., etc. And so... In the, in the same way that God the Father sends the Son is the same way that you're sent to be on great com, the Great Commission. Which means there's a lot more to the Great Commission than maybe what we think about. Um, John Piper says it this way. You have three possibilities in regard to being a missionary. 
You can be a goer. You can be a sender. So you can either be the one that goes or you can be the one that sends them. Or the third possibility is you can be disobedient. You could say neither, but he doesn't classify it as neither. He just says disobedient. You can be a goer, you can be a sender, you can be a disobedient. There is no other option these three. This means that there's no coasters. There are no people who say, missions isn't my thing. I don't think in terms of going and sending, that's not my calling. I just do pro-life work downtown, period. Well, I don't think that's an option for a Christian in view of Matthew 18, 19, 18 through 20. When it addresses the whole church, all authority is mine. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Every Christian should feel that they have to be engaged in that. So every Christian not only should feel, every Christian is in some, in some level responsible for that. So when we say, how is 1 Kings 19, maybe one of the most important chapters in the Bible, Old Testament, um, it's because it's going to give us truths about what it means to be a missionary. He, and in a lot of senses, he's a prophet of God, but he goes and he proclaims things for God. And as we see first Kings 19 unfold, we're going to see truths about what it means to be someone who's called to live on mission for God. And so, uh, since we are also called to live on mission for God, there's going to be some truths that will unfold in first Kings 19. That will be, I think, extremely helpful for all of you. Can we, can we make the house lights a little bit brighter? Just, I just don't want uh, people to fall asleep. <laughs> Make it brighter. Bring it up. There we go. Now we can all see each other and you're all going to be super awake. All right. So um, we are joining Elijah in 1 Kings 19. If you remember, uh, Elijah just won the Super Bowl and he's about to go to Disney World, right? He, he beat everybody at Mount Carmel. What are you about to do? He's like, I'm going to Disney World. And, he, and he's walking off the mountain, kind of strutting or whatever. Uh, and he's, he's feeling good. We just joined him as he just faced the prophets of Baal, defeated all the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, killed uh, all of them, and then sent Israel back and even told Ahab, uh, you know, rain's coming. You can go ahead and go back as well. And so she, he should be feeling pretty good uh, about the victory that he has and feeling good about what supposedly should be the coming changes to Israel. Like, hey, all of Israel was invited out. They saw me through the, really the Lord, defeat Baal. They all should be like, whoa, Yahweh's the real God, not Baal. So he's thinking it's going to be, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. Changes are coming. The problem is it doesn't look like or seem like those changes are coming. And so he's probably feeling a little bit distraught about this. And you can just imagine Ahab who's there. He sees all this and Ahab's kind of sent back, uh, to Jezreel to tell Jezebel, like, Hey, uh, I just saw this. You can kind of even hear the panic in his voice as he goes back to Jezebel, his wife and said, Elijah drenched the whole altar with water and fire came down from heaven and consumed the whole altar and the whole bull. Like this Yahweh, he's real. Baal isn't. You can just kind of feel the tension in his voice as he's screaming it to Jezebel saying, this is bad. We're all going to die. We should all fear him. Elijah killed every single prophet by the way, Jezebel and Jezebel just replies like, no, so what? So what? we're not stopping anything. And, uh, he killed our prophets. I'm going to go kill him now by tomorrow. Like she's not phased in the least bit. And we can also see that in the kingdom, Ahab's not calling the shots. Jezebel's calling the shots. And so puzzled, uh, Ahab kind of looks at her like, what? 
Are you kidding me? Like, it's not going to go well for us. Uh, which brings us to where we are in verse 1 and verse 2. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Jezebel's unfazed. Jezebel sent a messenger to, to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. I'm coming after you. I don't care that you have all this power. I don't care that you have Yahweh on your side. You're going to die. And so... We come to verse 3. Controversial, you didn't even know, maybe. Controversial verse 3. Those first four words brings us to verse 3. Then he was afraid. And maybe you've heard this text before and you've kind of... uh, Heard it unfolded. I, I confess that even in uh, our First Kings devotional, uh, before I had studied First Kings nineteen, if you've been reading it, First Kings devotional chapter one, uh, devotion number one, I even kind of said like Elijah ran because he was scared. He just saw God do awesome things in verse eighteen, and now he can't even remember how God responded. And so in verse nineteen, like look at the difference in the contrast. Verse eighteen, he's killing. Baal's prophets and calling down fire. Verse 19, he's cowering in fear, running away because he's scared of Jezebel. I even wrote it in the devotion. But I, after studying, I'm not sure that that's right. I'm not sure that that's right. I don't think now that verse 3, then he was afraid, is actually correct. Because it also can be translated, then he saw. Then he saw. Just that's it. Then he saw which gives us vastly two different understandings of the rest of chapter 19 and what's going on. Understanding one, Elijah was afraid because he was a mighty man in chapter 18 and now he's cowering and weak in chapter 19. He runs away from Jezebel in shame, scared to death. God has to rebuke him in the cave, remind him that he's a prophet and give him the next work that he's supposed to do and not be fearful anymore. That's what we just read. That's what we could totally think that that could mean. But I don't think it's that anymore. If it's not Elijah was afraid, but it is, then Elijah saw, then understanding too, which totally changes it. This, this, this uh, running away is not out of fear. This running away is because God has been directing him the entire time to go to this particular place to have this, this moment on the mountain that we saw where he repeats himself explicitly, almost word for word in, cha- in verse t- 10 and verse 14. I don't know if you picked that up, but verse 10 and verse 14 are, exp- are, are like word for word the same things. So if it's just he saw, not the, uh, he was afraid, then the messenger came to deliver this message to him and said that he was going to die. He saw or he understood that the display of Yahweh's power on Mount Carmel had literally no effect on Israel or Jezebel or Ahab. He saw that, not that he was afraid, but just he saw that there would be no effect. And so whenever he saw that, he was hopeless, not afraid. He was just hopeless, like, man, this stinks. It didn't work. And so more coming on that. And when he saw that and he was hopeless and that he was not going to actually give the satisfaction to Jezebel, you're not going to kill me. 
Jezebel, because if you get to kill me, then everyone's going to think that Jezebel's mightier than Yahweh. And first Kings 18, Mount Carmel has made it sure that no one is ever going to be mightier than Yahweh. Yahweh is the mightiest and I don't want her to have the satisfaction. So instead I'm going to run away from her and just tell Yahweh, take me home, Yahweh. That way Jezebel doesn't get to do it, but you can just take me home because I haven't been the, the prophet that I thought I could be. I thought I could do it, but I haven't been. So he's just despondent or hopeless for the situation because he was thinking something different would have happened. So he runs the opposite way um, and just tells Yahweh to take him home, which would deprive Jezebel of any of the glory of getting to be the one that kills him. And so the rest of the chapter is not God rebuking Elijah for being afraid. I don't think that's the case at all. Instead, it's actually him agreeing with Elijah, more coming on that, and then having this this Moses... Elijah parallel moment. I don't know if you picked up on the, the parallelism from Exodus 32, 33 with the cave and showing him his glory. That's all that's all this happened with Moses. And then Elijah's having this same moment. So if that's the case, if what God is up to the whole time is I need for you, Elijah, to run to a cave far, far away so that you can have this same kind of Elijah Moses moment parallelism like you, like Moses had. Because if you notice the language here, it says that that he, he went, he went, he ran away and then God kept him alive and he laid under this bloom, uh, broom tree. And then God came later with the form of an angel in verse six and gave him more food. And he put, he's particularly gave him more food in verse six that he could literally go 40 days. Cause he says he arose and ate and he went in the strength of God for 40 days. Cause he told him in verse seven, he said, uh, Arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. In other words, God had a particular journey that he wants Elijah to go to. Like, I've got something very specific I need for you to do. Literally, go all the way down to Mount Horeb, really far away from here. And I want you to go to this particular cave so that you can have this Elijah-Moses parallel moment. And if that's the case, that means all that's unfolding is literally all the plan of God. And God's not rebuking Elijah. Instead, he's agreeing with him, leading him all the way to the cave to have this particular moment where he can remind him of the covenant that was made with Israel and then give him this new work of now. You're going to walk out of here and perform the, the covenant making judgment now of God. And you're going to do new work. So he wasn't afraid. Now, that's a lot. That's a lot. And I'm going to show you why it's judgment. You probably can guess which one I think it is. <laughs> I don't think that it's, he was afraid. Instead, I think that it was he saw, and which changes everything. It really changes everything about the rest of the chapter. That he's not necessarily this head case who's scared. Instead, he's um, doing exactly what God's been sovereignly leading him to do leading him to the cave so he can have these proclamations of what he thinks is going on. And then God's going to hear that covenant and let those things that he says be the, the sending out moment of a new work. Anyway, so that's what I think is going on in first Kings 19. So that brings us back up to verse three. And now, since that's what I think, and I think that that's the right way to, to go in this, in this chapter, uh, what are the kind of six big points, six truths that, that we can see in how um, if he's going to kind of, in a, in a way, live out the mission of God, how does that apply to us? Well, here's the first thing. Just think about this. So uh, in chapter, chapter 19, verse 1 and 2, 
Ahab goes to Jezebel and tells her all the information she needs. Like, you should have seen it. Like, Yahweh is real. He showed up. He just blew everything up. Everybody got killed. And he told her the whole story. But what did that do to her heart? Nothing. It did nothing. Which is the first truth that we can get when it comes to being a missionary. Getting people information and evidence is important, but ultimately not sufficient. Meaning this. So um, exhibit A would be Jezebel. And perhaps it was the spokesman. Ahab probably wasn't the, necessarily the most particularly convincing guy. He was not a Christian at that time. He wasn't a follower of Yahweh. So he didn't give it to her maybe in the most winsome kind of uh, convincing way. But the information was extraordinary. Um, and so whenever we go to tell people the gospel, information and evidence about who Jesus is, it's important. We have to proclaim the gospel to them. But ultimately, just the proclamation is not sufficient in that what's necessary to change their heart is not just information. God has to do something to their heart. God has to do something. Nothing happened to her heart. She heard all the information. So we can, we, can, we can try to think that, oh, all I need to do with my neighbor is just give them more information. Just give them more information and evidence. More information and evidence. Which is totally necessary, but it's not sufficient. What's necessary in order to change the heart is that God has to do a work in their heart. Sometimes we can even persuade ourselves that if I can just get the right information to someone, it's going to change their life. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Information by itself does not change people, does it? Have you noticed this? Have you looked on social media? Information never changes anybody's mind, right? It's kind of a cesspool of, of really opinionated information, right? But it doesn't, it doesn't change people like, oh, now that you yelled at me in, in all caps, I'm totally convinced of your position. Wow, thanks for berating me. I believe with you what you think now, which is why I say you should get rid of social media. Anyway, back to this. Um, I'm free of it. I live in pure bliss. Pure bliss. I have no idea what happens. I only talk to people face to face. It's wonderful. I I recommend it highly. Anyway, back to this. Um, Information by itself doesn't change people. The the gospel is news, no doubt. So you have to have information and evidence. That's what the gospel is. It's news. It's news proclaimed. And it is important, but it's not sufficient to change people. The changing of people is God's work. It's God's work, which means... While we still proclaim what's necessary is, you're, you're never going to guess. It's so obvious, right? You got to be praying. You got to be praying that God's going to do something to their heart. You pray, God, do something to their heart before I go. Because information, I mean, Jezebel probably heard a pretty amazing story, right? Really accurate. But what happened? Nothing. What do you pray? What do I pray then? Well, You could pray a lot of things, but let me just give you one text. Let me give you one text. Uh, I think it's a gloriously beautiful text that you could pray. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse six, second Corinthians chapter four, verse six. This is what you can pray. They need information, but it's not sufficient, but this is what makes it sufficient for God who said, let light shine out of darkness So God, just as in creation, he brought light out of darkness, ex nihilo. There was nothing there. And he actually shone the light into into creation and everything came um, alive in the same way, 
ex nihilo, when light came to creation and formed everything, the same thing happened to your heart. Whenever you were made anew, he shined a light into your heart. There was nothing there. But when he did it, as it says, has shown in our hearts this light. And when he did, when he saved you, when he changed your heart, your mind, your soul, and you were convinced of the good news of the gospel and you believed, then this is what happened. He has shown his light in your heart to give you, here it is, what happened to your mind, heart, and soul at that moment of regeneration? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what you pray. God, whenever I proclaim the gospel to my neighbor, would you shine the light of the gospel of the good news of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Let them see and know exactly who Jesus Christ is. Not just when I give information to evidence, but change their heart. You can look at verse four as well. Verse four stated in the negative. So in verse four, it says, um, Satan has come and blinded their hearts from getting to see. And then verse six, he just says it positively, but God has shown in their hearts so that they can see, but look at verse four and you can just say it opposite in verse, verse four, second Corinthians four, four says in their case, the unbelievers, the God of this world, that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So that's what he's blinding them to see. And you can just pray, Lord, Make them unblind so that they can see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's what you pray. So remember, you can convince yourself that information changes lives and it doesn't. Information by itself does not change lives. Now, it's still necessary. You, you, you can't just... St. Francis of Assisi has kind of been accredited the wrong... The wrong from what we actually understand, he didn't say... Um, live out the gospel and necessary use words. He actually didn't say that it's live out the gospel and you have to use words like you have to, no one will know who Jesus is. That's the whole point of Romans chapter 10. Um, and your mouth comes, how beautiful are the, are, the, are the feet that proclaim the gospel. Like you have to talk. It's important, but not sufficient. And so since it's not sufficient, the only thing that changes hearts is God. And you pray, God, please change them. That's the first truth about being a lifetime missionary, which for us then gives us great confidence and great hope whenever we go and proclaim the gospel as missionaries. Because every one of you is a missionary in some sense. And you're like, why? Why won't this person become a believer? I've been praying and, and I want them to. You keep praying and you realize that you can't change their heart with evidence. But it's necessary, but it's the Lord that changes their heart. And you pray and you pray and you pray. That's the first thing. The next thing is this. For those... Who, who proclaim the gospel as believers. They, they believe in the Great Commission. They believe in the task of the Great Commission. They, you, do, you don't do it perfectly. No one does. But nevertheless, you still, you still proclaim the gospel as much as you can. And sometimes, and this happens to us, you, you don't see fruit. You're like, well, I wish that someone would, would become a Christian today. And I haven't seen it in a month or a year or whatever. And you're, you're hopeless. You're sad. You're broken for people around you and it's not happened. This is what's going on in Elijah's life. He's broken for Israel. He's like, oh man, the changes are coming. They just saw Mount Carmel and then it's not happening. And he's, he's, he's hopeless. He's like, well, this stinks. This isn't what I thought was going to happen. And he's broken for the people of Israel and he's feeling hopeless. And so he runs. So you could even ask the question before we get to that, are, are, are you even broken then for the people around you? who are just as lost as Israel was in this moment, who are just as idolatrous as Israel seemingly is remaining. Are you even broken? If you're not broken, then, then take the couple steps back and ask God to break your heart for the people around you. But he is. He's broken. Uh, he, he was afraid. He ran for his life. And when I see 
he arose and ran for his life. I read that as because I don't want Jezebel to get the glory by taking it. I'd rather just go ask God to take it so that Jezebel gets no glory. Um, and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he, he went himself a, je- a day's journey even further into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And here it is. And he asked that he might die, saying, Is it enough now, O Lord, take away my life? Like, it, it didn't work. I'm, I'm despondent and hopeless. And I just, I just want to come home. I don't want her to get the glory for taking my life. But you just take it, God. And then he even says, I'm no better than my father's. And I don't think this is him pouting. I think that he's just saying... My fathers, as in, I'm not any better than all the prophets before me that tried to change the hearts of people of Israel, and they couldn't, and I can't either. I'm hopeless. I don't think he's afraid. I just think he's hopeless. Like, I really wish this would have worked. Um, but we're going to see this second truth. We're going to put up truth number two. Here's the truth number two. God's mercifully tender towards his hopeless servants. So you're, you want to proclaim the gospel, you're not seeing the fruit that you want. You should take heart because God is mercifully tender to you. He's mercifully tender to those who have found themselves hopeless and broken for the change that isn't seemingly coming. You can see how he's, how he's merciful here. He immediately gives him food, bakes him a cake, gives him some water. Which, by the way, harkens us back to verse, I'm sorry, chapter 17 with the cake and the water that, that's provided to him in the wilderness and by the widow. And it was Yahweh doing it again, showing him tender mercy when he's feeling hopeless. And uh, you can see if you keep going in verse six um, and he, uh, verse five, and he lay under the bloom tray and behold, an angel touched him and said, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there's a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And so you can see that the Lord's providing. Now, for those of you that are believers in Christ and you the best you can are sharing the gospel as faithfully as you can. It can sometimes feel hopeless. Um, it, can, it can be a hopeless thing. It can also be hopeless for pastors um, regarding the church because studies show that most churchgoers never actually share the gospel, which can be hopeless for pastors as well when you realize that most of the people that go to church don't actually share the gospel. Like LifeWay Research says that 80% of Christians believe that they have a personal responsibility to share the gospel but two out of every three Christians have never shared the gospel in their life before ever and never will. Two out of three will never, ever tell somebody about Jesus, which is astounding because it should be like not only the most important thing, but something that you just can't get over and stop talking about. I got this awesome deal for Black Friday. I got to tell you, I think is what Dave said. But like I got saved by Jesus. I got to tell you that that takes more precedent. So. Pastors also can be, can be hopeless to think that that's the case. I hope that's not the case in Remedy. I've never asked everybody here personally, and I'm not going to. Hey, how many times have you shared the gospel? I'm not going to do that. But I just would tell you each week that we should. Um, but for those that do share the gospel, you can also feel hopeless because you understand um, truth number one, which is that God has to change their heart. And so whenever you're proclaiming the gospel and people aren't getting saved right away, you can, you can, be, you can be despondent. You can be like, man, this, I wish this would happen more often. And notice the mercy here as he feeds him. He feeds him a second time, which is enough for a 40-day journey. That's a lot of food. Um, he actually is going to, even though he's sad, give him a new mission. 
Like, I know you're sad and you think that everything's over, but I'm going to overflow with mercy because I see that you are a great servant. Here's a new mission, too, for you to go do. You're actually going to go to Mount Oreb. We're going to have this conversation, this, this Elijah Moses parallel moment. And then you're going to go and you're going to actually call your next guy, Elisha, and even a king and a foreign king. You've got, you got new stuff that's going to happen. Um, and even... This is where it's awesome. In verse 9 and 13, right before 10 and 14, um, how about that? <laughs> when he says, um, what are you doing here, Elijah? Like God goes to him and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Gives Elijah the, the chance to verbalize exactly how he's feeling. Why are you here? This is mercy for him. I, I want you to speak your whole heart. And, and by the way, you should know when he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? God knows what he's doing there. He gave him enough food for a 40 day journey to go to Mount Oreb. Like the sovereign hand of God has taken him to here. It's not like, Hey, what are you doing at Mount Oreb? Like God actually led him to Mount Oreb. Like I want you here. So it's more along the lines of, do you know why you're here, Elijah? And then he proclaims in verse 10 and 14, like almost the same thing word for word. And so he gets to verbalize his deep love for Israel and his despair that Israel's not being saved. Look at it. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord. Like I, I am so excited about the glory of God and no one else is. It's breaking his heart. It, I'm just, I'm just sad for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. I want so bad what you want to happen. You want them not to forsake your covenant, God, and be jealous for your glory. Me too. I want that. And he says, they've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets, even I, and I am only a left. Now, uh, that's, uh, that's not exactly accurate, but that's what it feels like. That's the ones, we know that, that Obadiah was hiding some in, in, in the caves away from Ahab and Jezreel. But, but for Elijah, he was the public one facing the bells and fighting them. They weren't, they were hiding in the caves. So in some sense, it's even I and I only are left and they seek to take away my life. So God even gives him in a mercy, a chance to verbalize and let him process out loud just how he feels and how he's sad. And then puts him on this new mission. Which, by the way, I said um, in verse 8, you can see he gives him enough strength for 40 days and 40 nights. That sounds a lot like Moses, right? Um, to go to Mount Oreb. So in verse 19, I'm sorry, 9 and 13, when he asked him, what are you doing here? It's not angrily like, what are you doing here? Why are you hiding? It's not that. Instead, I think it's more along the lines of like, don't you know why I brought you here? And so it's for him to be kind of be able to experience this Moses, Elijah parallel moment, just as Moses in Exodus 32 and 33 was brought to Mount Sinai for the 40 days and 40 nights so that Yahweh can pass before him. And then they have this covenant intercession. And then in verse in chapter 34 of Exodus, this covenant renewal, the same thing's going to happen where Elijah travels in the same sense of things is going to happen where Elijah travels 40 days and 40 nights. And he makes this kind of covenant accusation about Israel. They're not following you like they should. They're not jealous for the glory of God like they should be. They've broken covenant and God's going to say, I agree with you. They have. And so since they have, you can go out on this new mission, which is going to be uh, a judgment. It's going to, I'm going, you're going to bring and carry out a covenant judgment on the people of Israel. We saw that whenever he says, you can go to Heziel, Jehu, and Elisha and bring them out. And the one, in verse 17, this is the judgment. The one who escapes from the sword of Heziel, Jehu will put to death. The one who escapes from Jehu, Elisha will put to death. Judgment will come now to the people of Israel who are breaking covenant. You have a new mission since they broke covenant. 
that now you get to carry out this new mission. So back to the whole point of truth too. For those that are feeling hopeless right now in mission, for those of you that are sharing the gospel faithfully with your neighbors, with your family members, um, with your coworkers, if you're allowed to, or whatever, your fam- whatever, and you're feeling despondent because you want to see changes happening and it's not happening as quickly as you pray, recognize this, recognize this. Just as much as God overflows for mercy and love for Elijah, he does for you as well. He loves you as James. Elijah was just a man just like us. That's what it says in James 5. So you're, you're just like Elijah and he loves you just like you are. And he's the one that brings changes to hearts, not you. And he knows that. And so he wants you to turn to him right now for comfort. He loves to feed you as he loves to feed Elijah with everything that you need. And he's giving you mission right now, a people for you to share with. All the time, there's people around you that he's giving you the mission to share with. And he cares about you. And he wants to hear from you. Just like he wants to hear from him. Don't you know? And he makes this proclamation. He wants to hear from you as well how you feel. Whether you feel hopeless or whether you feel joyful or whether you feel happy or whether you feel sad or whether you really want someone to get saved right now and it's not. He wants to hear from you and he wants you to talk to him just like you would want to talk to your dad. That's the second truth. God's mercifully tender towards hopeless servants. If you are feeling despondent right now in mission, God is overflowing to you in mercy. If you're one of those, you know, I'm not trying to cast like shame on anybody here. If you're the one that's never shared the gospel, don't feel shame. God's mercifully tender to you as well. He's overflowing with mercy to you and saying, you, you, can, you can do that now. Right now, you can start. You can share the gospel with somebody. That's the second truth. Um, <clears throat> which brings us into... Uh, I want to talk about the declaration of Elijah, but let's, let's get there. You can see in verse 8, he arose and ate and drank and went to the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights <coughs> to Mount Oreb, the Mount of God. And then verse 9, uh, he came to a cave and he, and he lodged there for some time. Hold on. Sorry, my throat still is messed up. All right, and behold, <clears throat> the word of the Lord came to him. Uh, the word of the Lord... There is a little bit of a difference uh, in in the way that it's introduced in verse 9 and verse 13. You can see here, and behold, the word came to him and said, and in verse 13, uh, it says, and behold, there came a voice to him. So the word of the Lord came to him and a voice came to him. Those are two different things. And the reason why the second time says voice is because of verse 12, where there was no... God wasn't in the wind. God wasn't in the earth. God wasn't in the fire. But then it says at the very end of that, uh, after the fire, the sound of a low whisper, that's the the Hebrew word voice. And so his voice comes. We're going to get to 11 and 12 because it's amazing. And then his voice comes and says this. But nevertheless, here we go. So he says these two little things. What are you doing here? As in, don't you know, do you want to know or do you understand why you're here, Elijah? And he, he replies in verse 10 and 14. I have been very jealous for the Lord God, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. So truth number three is this. The glory of God is both the fuel and the goal 
by which we live and do mission. That's what, that's what he's declaring. I am jealous for your glory, God. They're not, and I want them to be. You are too. You want them to not be covenant breakers, but to live inside the covenant and to be jealous or uh, on mission for your glory. You want them to love your glory just like I do. And so he declares this. So the glory of God, and when I say it's the fuel and the goal, um, it's, in, it's intentional. Think about what I'm saying. So it's the means, the, the glory of God is the means and the end. It's both. The glory of God is, is the reason why, um, it's the end, it's the reason why we're doing it. But also by living for the glory of God, it's the means by which you actually bring about the end. This is what he's saying. I am jealous for the God of hosts or I'm jealous for your glory. It doesn't have to be a text of Elijah wallowing in self-pity, but it can be just straightforward. Like when he says this, it doesn't have to be him whining, saying, I'm the only one. Actually, we can just take him at his word. Like, what do, you, do you know what you're doing here? And then he, he makes this statement. This is what I'm doing here. I love your glory. No one else does. And I want him to. We can read Elijah at his, and take him at his word, meaning um, this is what Elijah believes And this is what he wants his life to be about. He's jealous for the Lord of hosts. He wants what God wants. He wants Israel to keep repent and keep covenant. And they won't. The New Testament version of this, uh, a New Testament version, not the, but a New Testament version of this can be Acts 20, 24, where Luke writes that Paul says, but I don't account of my life of any value or as precious to myself that I only may finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's what my life should be about, about testifying to the Lord. I want it all to be about God. And this is what he's saying, um, which means um, a, a couple things. One, do we want what God wants? God wants for his glory to be made known and manifest in all creation. Do we want that? Is that, is that the bottom line goal of our life? Is it something else or do we really like Elijah and ultimately like God want the glory of God to be made manifest all over creation? A holy and pure bride, his church, um, should want this. We sh- God wants a church that is um, jealous for his glory. Do we want this? Do we want a church that's the same? Do we want a church that loves the new covenant of Jesus Christ and loves the glory of God? That's the first thing. Um, and the second thing is, uh, well, let me read this from, from second Timothy six, eight, because, uh, this is what Paul writes as he's finishing the race saying that he has actually lived out this way. He's lived out where the glory of God is his fuel and his goal. Paul says this, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come for I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me also, but those who have loved his appearing. So do we love the glory of God? Do we love the glory of God? And the second thing is, if we love the glory of God, are we going to live for it? Are we going to proclaim it? Are we going to um, be radically God-centered in everything that we do? So that more people can come to know Christ. This is the declaration of Elijah. And this should be for us. The glory of God is the fuel and the goal 
by which we live and do our lives and do mission. That's the third. The fourth thing that we can see is this uh, amazing little text on 11 through 14. Uh, let's read. Well, let's go ahead and put it up first. You can put up number four. God is mightier than we conceive, but reveals himself, not on earth, wind, and fire, um, but in his word. So look at 11. He said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. This is after the first one. And he says, go out and stand on the mountain before him. And behold, the Lord passed by a great strong wind, tore the mountains and broken pieces and the rocks. But the Lord, notice that you have this word in. When you do earth, wind, and fire, it says in, earthquake, wind, and fire. Sorry, thinking of the band. It's not even September. Sorry. All right. So you got earth, wind, and fire. And he says, in, you don't know that you should listen to, find it on your iTunes and listen to it later. But here it says in. So in the earth, wind, and fire, he says he's not in, but that little ends out on, on the last thing when it talks about his voice. It doesn't say, and the Lord was in a whisper. It says, and it was God in the whisper. So here we are. Watch. Um, And behold, the Lord passed by in a great strong wind and tore the mountains and broke the pieces in the rocks in the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And it did all that. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, here it is, the sound of a low whisper or the word's voice. It's like a a low voice. A still small voice is kind of what your KJV should say probably. It's, It's close, but it's really... More about the voice. So you have earth, wind, and fire in the house. Um, but uh, that's not where God is in. Here, it, it gets interesting. When speaking of the earth, wind, and fire, it says that God was not in the earth, wind, and fire. But then the end is removed, as I said, when Elijah says uh, what he does here, which is his voice, a whisper. And it shows us a couple things. First, it, it contrasts earthquakes, wind, and fire, which are huge things, by the way. And by the way, if you, if you remember in first Kings 18, you have a mixture kind of those three things where God shows up at Mount Carmel and he's saying, just think about how gloriously big that was. Those things are huge earthquakes, wind and fire. When they show up, those things are huge. And then he contrasts it and says beside it, those things pale in comparison to how big God is. Like he wasn't in those, but then he was in his voice. And so he actually has to temper himself really small in his voice to a whisper to let you understand how big he is. Because if he came in all of his glory, it would be way bigger than earth, wind and fire. It would be enormous and it would overwhelm you. So he shows up not in those things, which, by the way, are huge things, but in a whisper. So the first thing that this shows us by comparing that he's not in earth, wind, and fire, but he is in this small voice, it shows us that this enormous, enormous uh, God that we have. I was going to show a video here, but I just decided not to, to try to give us an understanding of how big God is. I'm going to try to verbalize it, and it's not going to be as good as the video, but I'm going to try it anyway. So um, if we, we're on earth, you know that. And so if we, if you try to think, um, okay, here's earth, and we have the sun, and then we have these nine planets, right? That's pretty big. If you just take our solar system and you think about just where we are right here, that's a pretty big expanse of space. And we have tiny little earth right here with our nine planets. But we know by looking outside at night that that's, our sun's not the only star. But like if you go out, 
you know, away from lights, you can see tons and tons of stars, which means this is just one little thing compared to like the vastness, 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 vastness of stars in space. And you have just this tiny little earth where we are. And in that tiny little earth, if you were to drill down and find little teeny tiny rock hill, here we are sitting here. And then you have this vastness, 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 vast, 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 vast of space. And that itself is not big enough to contain the bigness of God. Now compare that, God's bigger than all of that, to the tiny little space that you sit in in that little black chair right now. That's how big God is. So you have earth, wind, and fire, and if God were to show up, it would be much bigger than that. It would overwhelm us. So that all that he can do is come with a little whisper of a voice so that it doesn't absolutely, the glory of God doesn't absolutely overwhelm you and kill you. That's how big he is. That's the first thing he's trying to help us see. But the second thing is this. In all of his vastness, he is especially present, not in earth, wind, and fire, general revelation. He's especially present in his word, special revelation. So in Psalm 19, the the heavens declare the glory of God in the first seven or eight verses. But then the second Psalm and the second half of Psalm 19, he talks about the glory of his word and how God speaks to us through his word. And he's saying he wasn't in the earth. He wasn't in the fire. He wasn't in the wind, but you hear him in his voice and in all of God's vastness. He is especially present to us in his word. Notice the other things Um, say he wasn't in them, but uh, it was his voice. It is him when it's his voice. He doesn't come in other things like this. He comes as himself in the voice, which means God's word is where he is especially present to us. He speaks to us whenever he comes to, to his word. So what does all that mean when we say God's mighty than we conceive, but reveals himself? In regard to being a missionary, what does this mean? It means we serve a mighty God. It means that biblical faith um, is content for looking at the word for revelation. Like the word is where God reveals himself. And it also means in mission, in mission, that means telling people about Jesus. The word is your greatest sword. I know that we have... That we have, you know, we have the armor of God and the sword is where we fight for uh, killing sin in our own life. But it's also our greatest weapon when it comes to declaring the gospel to people. The word. Have you ever heard? I mean, I've heard it countless amounts of times of people saying, well, I wasn't a Christian. But then I sat down and started reading my Bible. And then just by reading the Bible, I became a Christian all by myself. It's the power of the word. Right? It's the power of the word. And so God is mighty to conceive, but he reveals himself, not in earth, wind, and fire, but he reveals himself in his word. So the word is crucial. It's absolutely crucial. So the next thing we see um, after this exchange, he, he makes this declaration again in 14. I've been very jealous for the Lord of God of hosts for people of Israel forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed uh, your prophets with the sword. And even I and I am left. They seek to take away my life. And the Lord said to him, like, Lord's going to agree with this assessment of Israel. They're not following you like they should. And now here's a new mission that you can bring judgment upon them because they aren't following you like they should. Here's how we're going to carry out the judgment. And the Lord said to him, go return to your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you're going to anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. That Haziel is a foreign king. He's not, 
He's not over Israel. And so this foreign king, Haziel, will have like an external military force against Israel and it won't go well for him. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. So internal politics as well. Jehu, he's going to be over Israel. And not only that, you're going to announce Elisha, who will be kind of the prophet in your place, the, the son of Shaphat, Shaphat, however you want to say it. Um, so you've got those three guys who are going to come after you. And he says, and the one who escapes from the Haziel shall Jehu put to death. The one who escapes from Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. These three guys are going to carry it out. And they're going to bring apart judgment. And then you can see in verse 19. So he went out from there and he found Elisha who was plowing the 12 yoke. And he calls Elisha to him. And he left the 12 oxen and ran uh, after Elijah and said, let let me kiss my father and my mother. And then I'll follow you. And said, go back again for what I have to do for you. What have I done? Let's try that again. For what have I done to you? (laughs) And and returning, following him, he took the yoke of oxen, sacrificed the bull, the flesh, and etc. You got it. Um. But what we see here in this unfolding kind of saga, when he gives him this new mission, he's not going to do it by himself. He's not going to do it by himself. Here's a new thing, and you're not going to do it by yourself. So number five, living on mission, um, living on mission with God brings a sudden joyful delight of joining others on mission for God. Now, I know this is an Old Testament mission, and it's of judgment. You're not going to be given this thing. You're not like, okay, let me get three other dudes, and we're just going to kill everybody with swords. It's, it's not that. Uh, it's a different mission. It's going and saving their souls. But nevertheless, here God's bringing that to them. He's bringing people to join them on mission. You might ask then when I say mission of God, you might say, what's the mission of God then? Uh, maybe one of the simplest verses is this. Luke nineteen ten. Jesus says this. For the son of man, talking of himself, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. That's the mission of God, to come to seek and save the lost. So we join God on his mission to seek and save the lost. Now, God saves them, we know, but we proclaim the gospel and God saves them. So we're joining his mission. So you can imagine being Elisha here. You're just chilling at your house, plowing the field. And all of a sudden, Elijah comes up and says, hey, time for you to be a prophet. Let's go of Yahweh. And it had to have been a, a sudden thing for him, but it reinforces the truth that God's entitled to command people to obey at any time. And they're obligated to obey. And it's also very similar, this calling, if you remember in Luke chapter 9, uh, it's very similar to when Jesus uh, is talking about the cost of being a disciple. In Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 57, he says this, As they were going along the road, someone said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes, birds of the nest have birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head to another. He said, follow me. And he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hands to the pond looks back as fit for the kingdom of God. So it's very similar to this calling, which just basically means when God calls you to live on mission, don't come up with as many excuses as you can to delay it. That's the basic gist of it. Go start it right away and join right away. Um, it doesn't mean you can't like love your parents or you can't go to their, your parents' funeral. It's, it's not that it's just when God calls, go be obey it and call. And you have this joyful delight of having people with you. So let's think of it this way. Um, in, in truth number five, who is the person right now 
outside of your spouse, spouse can't, still counts, but outside of your spouse, um, if you're single, then who's the person right now in your life? Uh, if you're engaged, who, it doesn't have to be the person you're engaged to, but who is the person right now in your life? Um, maybe in your community group, probably in your church that you can partner with to do ministry. Who's the person in your life that you can, you can have a partnership with that we can do ministry together. If you're Paul, who's your Silas? Or if you're Barnabas, who's your Paul? Like who's the person that you can do ministry with? Of course you can do it with your spouse. Not saying you can't, but likely there's somebody else that you can, you both have the same passion for people and you can do this with. Living on mission brings right here, the sudden and joyful delight of joining others to do the mission of God. That's what happens here. And then lastly, verse 18, verse 18. And all of this kind of judgment that's coming, look what he says in verse 18. Yet, this is mercy, sweet mercy. Yet, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Truth six, there's always a sweet mercy of God in mission. He keeps a precious remnant to encourage our souls. I will leave 7,000 in Israel. So what you have wanted is that people would repent from their idolatry and follow God. I'm going to do that. I'm going to give you 7,000. That will do it. It's a sweet mercy of God. He didn't have to give this gift to Elijah. It could have been otherwise. And yet he does it anyway. Dale Davis says, I shall leave 7,000 in Israel is the Old Testament equivalent to the New Testament words of Jesus. I will build my church. Grace will have a remnant. The The God of grace insists on it. Which means for us this. It's a mercy of God for him to leave the church on earth. It's a mercy of God for you to have the people that you get to sit with every Sunday. That's just a mercy. You to have a community group with these people that you can do life with and have fun with and do fellowship things with, but also learn the Bible together. These people around you as fellow worshipers of God, if you think of it this way, are actually a mercy from God to you of encouragement. Just think if you were the only Christian here, it would be, it'd be terrible to have to do this by yourself. But the mercy is, Hey, you get to have a church and I'm going to put local expressions of the church all around the globe for you to be with and have people around you. It's a part of his mercy to actually get to have the church around of you, which means be an active member of that church. Be with your people All the time, because it's a sweet mercy of God that they're around you right now. And you're not doing this by yourself. So let's conclude this way. Very quick conclusion. Um, If you're hopeless and you're broken, find your hope in Jesus. If you are hopeless and broken for your sin, your only hope is Christ. If you're hopeless and broken for people around you, your only hope is Christ. And we have such a kind King Jesus who comes to us who are broken and hopeless in our sin and in our despair and mission. And he gives us his life so that we can be forgiven of our sin and we can live on mission for him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your mercy. I, uh, I thank you for this word. Um, I thank you for your tender dealings with Elijah and your tender dealings with us. Thank you for being obedient all the way to the point of death on the cross. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper now, Lord, I pray that we would think on the good news of Jesus, that he gave his life for us so that we can be forgiven and that we would be enamored with the cross of Christ and never get over it. That it would just dominate the way we live. It would dominate our deep desire that the glory of God would be both the fuel and the goal of our lives. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.